why do we pray? That's the question we began to unpack last week when we uh, uh, started this series on praying for a change. And uh, why do we pray? Uh, we tried to unpack the, the thinking last week that prayer is sometimes approached from our perspective on how do I get God to do what I want him to do so that my life works the way I want it to go. And uh, we tried to last week by looking at a key verse, uh, debunk that. And I found a video this week and something I was watching that, that kind of illustrated it. What's it look like when we approach prayer from the perspective of a self-centered perspective? And so I want to show you this. Cat videos are always fun. So go ahead and take a look at this if you would. Um, these cats, and uh, they have been trained to receive a treat whenever they ring the bell. See, the other cat learns that he can reach over. Very good. All right, very good. So, all right. And that would probably be better than what I'm going to share, but we'll, we'll move on. Okay, enough cats. All right, bye, bye, bye cats. Um, anyway, so uh, that's the gist, though. And I, I think from God's perspective, when he looks at us and we're just coming to God singing, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, it must look a little bit like that from his perspective. Here they are ringing the bell again. They just want another treat. They just want another thing from me. Um, and, and again, God is good. God blesses. God's uh, abundance, as we shared, is very generous to us. And so oftentimes he does that. But uh, as you read scripture, you never find that being the picture of what prayer is supposed to be about. Prayer is always to be about um, uh, either the Lord showed up or someone adjusted the lights. I'm not sure what that meant. Uh, but when, uh, the, uh, when you read a scripture and what prayer is painted as, it's what we looked at. And, and, and Morris quoted this for you. I want to show you these verses again just, just to refresh what we looked at last week. Is this whole idea that, that prayer is not about getting God to do my will. Prayer is always the process in which I engage with God in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that it's about me getting on God's agenda, that you, you, you come and it's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven, not mine. And so I hope that this past week you spent some time thinking through that and, and processing that and looking at your prayer life from the perspective of, is this time that I spend with God, is it simply about asking God to do what I want him to do? Or is it time that I spend when I read and, and I spend a few moments thinking, God, what do you want me to be doing that blesses you? Um, and the more that we do that, the more we grow in that, the more that we see that prayer changes things, and particularly it changes us. So we want to build on that today by, by looking over these next few weeks. Um, there's three specific places apart from that in the book of Matthew where Jesus specifically tells people to pray for things. Um, and they are not things that necessarily rise to the top of your list when you bow your head to pray. Because most of our, at least for me, my prayer requests tend to be, where's the squeaky wheel in my life? Where am I stressed about right now? And, and those are good and fine. But Jesus specifically says in, in the book of Matthew in three different places, pray about this, pray for this. And so we're going to look at those these next few weeks here. And uh, today we want to look at one that actually takes place just verses uh, before Matthew 6, at the end of Matthew 5. It's the same sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is in, is in this little section where he is um, contrasting the Pharisees, uh, the righteousness, excuse me, of the Pharisees, and contrasting that to what his kingdom righteousness looks like. And, and it's really about an out, outer work, outer appearance, 
approach that the Pharisees had to Jesus says, I want this to be a holistic thing. I want this to be something from the inside out, from your heart out, that you approach God in, in life and righteousness with. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, beginning in 543. He says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only people, uh, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So be perfect, therefore, or be complete, be whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So did you catch that, what Jesus told you to pray about? Not a very popular thing, not an easy thing, not a thing that you really want to do, as a matter of fact. But he was very clear. But pray about the hard-to-love people in your life. And some of you are thinking, well, what else would I ever get prayed about? Because there's all these hard-to-love people all around me, and, and we identify that. And that's why this is such a practical thing, that Jesus knows us. Every one of you, probably every day this week, wrestled with feelings, as what Morris mentioned, of being run down, neglected, overlooked. And the pain that comes from that can oftentimes create anger, which can feed into a level of hatred. We may not call it hate, but hatred in, in all of its cousins, of resentment, of bitterness, of grudge holding. And so when you feel hatred rising in you, Jesus said you should bring that to your father in prayer because he has a will for that. He has a kingdom plan to approach that with. And so when it comes to hard to love people in your life, I believe you're going to be characterized by one of two approaches to that uh, issue in your heart. So some people learn to search for reasons not to love. Some people approach that bitterness, and, and if there's a resentment towards a person or people, uh, they just spend the rest of their life searching for reasons not to love, bless, or do anything positive, think anything positive about that person or those people. And so they spend a lot of emotional energy, um, lose a lot of sleep, thinking about what are all the reasons that I should not love, bless, care about that person. And if you ask them, they can rehash all of the things and that's a very natural and very normal approach to that. And I think we all do it. We all get are guilty at the times of, of spending our, our lives thinking, you know what, I've got this place in my heart where I've got this anger, I've got this hatred towards a situation, towards a person, and I just spend way too much time searching for reasons not to love. And so some people are going to just add fuel to their anger, and so the haters are going to hate, if I can use that quote. Um, but sometimes Jesus is calling us to say, you know what, instead of haters being haters, why don't haters learn to be lovers, okay? And that's not a 60s or 70s poster, but I think it's a Jesus thing. He's calling you to respond to that issue in your life in a different way. Instead of looking for reasons not to love, some people spend their time seeking for help to love deeper. Some people hear Jesus' words where Jesus says, you know what, when this issue comes up, when you feel persecuted, when you feel put down, when you feel run down, when you feel neglected, and you're wrestling with those feelings of resentment and hatred and bitterness, instead of spending all that time rehearsing all that's been done to, wrong to you, why don't you seek for help from me so I can teach you to love in a deeper way? Now, again, that doesn't fix everything. It may not fix anything except inside of you. 
but I think it's worth listening to and considering. And, and I believe that as you look at, listen to Jesus' words, and I read those through this week, time after time, I think this is a constant struggle for us. And if there was ever a time, and this probably is applied to human history, no matter what time you pop into human history at, but if there was ever a time when the words of Jesus need to be heard and heeded by his people especially, it is this day and this time. We are so angry in, in our culture. We feel threatened. Many of you, if you've been, if you've lived in this country very long, you feel threatened by growing secular pressures all around you against your faith. Or our world and our country have changed dramatically, and, and change is always hard, and, and resentment and anger and bitterness can come out of that. Social media has exponentially increased the news and the voices that we hear, and, and I don't know if about you, but it doesn't take me five minutes on pick your pick your app and I'm already angry and I'm worked up about something that someone said and the rest of my day that just goes with me if we're not careful our hearts can become very hard and our words and our actions can become very harsh but Jesus has a different way to approach our anger to approach that level of hatred that we may have towards pick your enemy and again it doesn't have to be a world war it can be just it can be in a marriage, it can be in a, in a family, it can be in your workplace, your school, it can be in any place where someone feels like they are just simply an unfriendly opponent to you. And they may not be in doing it intentionally, but just if you feel that, then you're going to have to wrestle through this. And so Jesus would say this, so I just want to walk back through that passage, those words of Jesus, and just think about why he said what he said, and, and encourage you to begin to make this something that you pray about on a regular basis, is the people that are hurting you um, in, in, at a soul level, and, and how you're processing that and managing that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, again Jesus said, and it's a weird phrase, because you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now if you read through all of Matthew 5, you'll find this is the sixth uh, of six times Jesus says you have heard that it was said. And each time he, he's drawing out something that the people of his day are being taught by the Pharisees, religious leaders. And so the first part of this sounds very normal and very natural, very biblical even. It's a quote directly out of Leviticus 19, but he says, love your neighbor, and what should be there? Love your neighbor what? What's the rest of that? Somebody, some Bible scholar. As yourself. Very good. And so love your neighbor as yourself, but somehow in the course of, of life, over these centuries, that that verse had been in existence, the people of Jesus' day had applied that, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I think how do we get from love your neighbor as yourself to love your neighbor and hate your enemy? And you begin to wrestle with how in the world did that come about? Well, maybe there's a couple of way, ways that happens because I think we would never check that verse and make that my memory verse for the week. I'm going to love my neighbor and hate my enemy. But it's easy for us to shift into the thinking that led there. Let's look first in Leviticus 19 where that love your neighbor verse comes from. Jesus is quoting that. The religious leaders of the day were quoting that verse. Leviticus 19, 18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, uh, against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so God is inviting the people of, of Moses' day to practice an attitude in their community, in this new land that they're going to be moving into soon. As they practice the law of God, don't just make it about ritual. At a heart level, don't hold grudges. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Be good to each other. But somehow, it had been morphed by Jesus' time into love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so how did that happen? Maybe it happened because they had read the Psalms. 
you ever read the Psalms and, and David as he is talking about how he is experiencing and seeing the brokenness of life around him? And, and David sometimes writes really harsh things if you read the book of Psalms, right? David sometimes says that, man, I hope they, they crush their teeth like with rocks. I think, well, where is, what in the world am I supposed to do with that, Jesus? But it's not a go and do so much as it is a, this is how I feel as I look at the injustice and the brokenness of life. And he's just being honest with God. And, and maybe they took those journal entries, which is much of what the book of Psalms is, um, as as David and others are just pouring their hearts to God and, and they made them go and do's instead of this is how, how he felt in the, in the light of a broken world. They would write things like this in Psalm 119, 113 as an example. I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. Go to the next one if you would. Um, there you go. I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. And so maybe they, they looked at verses like that and they kind of tweaked that and said, well, we'll love our neighbors, but all those double-minded people, we have an excuse to hate. Psalm 139, uh, 21 and 22 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor uh, those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. And so maybe they read those journalistic entries of David. As David is, is not saying, this is how I want to feel, and this is how I need to live. He's just saying, God... As I look at you, as I look at your truth, I look at your law, and I look at the way the world works, I just hate this. And he's being honest with God, which is a very healthy example for you and for me. The Psalms are wonderful places to turn when, when you're wrestling with the ups and downs and the hurts and, of, of life. But I love how Psalm 139 finishes, if you keep reading past verse 22, verse 23 and 24 says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so in just four verses, he goes from I, I hate and I'm struggling and I hate the injustice and the brokenness of the world to God. I recognize that inside of me are ways that are wrong. And I am worried about things and I'm upset about things. And so would you, God, search my heart and show me and lead me into a better way. And so maybe the Pharisees wrongly looked back at the Psalms and said, you know what, David hated his enemies, and so we should hate our enemies. So maybe that's where that came from. Uh, and I think we'll come back to this in a moment, but I, I just think the beauty of that verse, if you're looking for a, a verse every morning that you should get up and think about or pray or memorize, this is a good one because, man, it's a, if that's your prayer, God, would you please search my heart because I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm upset, I've got these things, these people, I feel like these things are being done to me or these things are happening. Lead me, God. Help me to process this in a God-honoring way. And so maybe that's where that came from. Or maybe it was more of just a racial thing. That as they defined the word neighbor, uh, they defined neighbor as everyone who lived where I live, looks like I look, eats what I eat, lives like I lives, and believes what I believe, and, and all of those things. So that meant for a good Jewish people, we love all the Jewish people, but anyone who's not Jewish... We don't need to love them because they're not worthy of love. And the Jewish people of their day uh, hated the Roman oppressors who oppressed them. And Jesus, several places, challenges them on that. There's actually a quote that existed in Jesus' day that one Jewish scholar wrote that said this. If a Jew sees a Gentile or a non-Jewish person has fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. Of course it is written, do not rise up against your neighbor's life. 
but that Gentile is not your neighbor. And so there's that thinking, well, I love the people who fit into my little circle, but everybody else I don't need to bother with them. I shouldn't worry about saving the Gentile's life. He's not my neighbor. Let's let him drown. And so that thinking existed in Jesus' day. And so maybe that's where the religious leaders had taken that, you know what, our only commitment, our only challenge is to love good Jewish people. Everybody else can go to hell. We don't care. We just don't care at all. And I'm not being funny when I say that. They literally thought they can go to hell because the only people I care about are these Jewish people. Okay? That's, that's, that was their thinking. That's the way they lived. They hated Roman people. They hated anybody who wasn't Jewish. And so it can be very subtle for us that we can begin to think the same things if we're not careful. But Jesus has a different way. Jesus is calling us to live and to think and to process this on a daily basis in a different way. So again, what would Jewish people do? They would spend a great deal of time finding reasons to hate Roman people. They would rehash all the things the Romans had done to them on a regular basis so that they maintained the hate and anger in their hearts and in their communities instead of seeking help like Jesus is calling them to, to say, you know what, how can we do this differently? How can we process this in a different way? And so as we kind of think about that whole little phrase, I want you to take you back to Leviticus 19, where that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, came from. And as you, if you were to read that chapter in it's all of its context, there's a number of places where you find things like this, where God is expanding their view and challenging them, don't let this just become about you and your Jewish, your, your Hebrew community. My heart, my concern is for a greater people. Leviticus 19 verse 10 says, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner because I am the Lord your God. So what was he saying to his Hebrew people? Remember the story of Ruth a month or two ago when we walked through that story? And where does Ruth come from? She's a Moabitess. She is not a Hebrew. She doesn't speak the language. She doesn't obey their commands. She doesn't live like they live. And yet... Where does she find a place to, to, to live and to be cared for and, and be incorporated into God's people? It's in a field because Boaz obeys this verse. He leaves the out, outer corners of his, of his field. He cares for those who are on the outside. And so even God, back in Leviticus 19, didn't want it to get to be love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He wanted them to cultivate an attitude that was different. Later in that chapter, verse 34, it says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. So where does he point them to? Hey, Hebrew people who think that you are God's chosen people and that my love is exclusively for you, I want you to remember a time not so long in your history when you were on the outs, when you were desperate for food, and I courted favor for you in the, in the land of Egypt under a Pharaoh, and he welcomed you in, and he fed you and cared for you and gave you land. And then when another Pharaoh came along who didn't share the same affinity for you, and he began to enslave you, I remember I heard your cries as you were oppressed and beaten and, and, and just taken advantage of. I heard that, and I delivered you into this good land that you in which you now live. So don't forget where you have come from as you look at the people around you who may be a little different than you. Hold my law, be faithful to me, but don't ever let this arrogance that could lead to a place where you would say, love your enemy and hate everybody, or love your neighbor, which is us, but hate everybody else. That attitude, even in Leviticus 19, is incorporated that, that they should fight against that. And so Jesus comes to us and says, you know what, you've heard it said, love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. But verse 44 says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who would persecute you. Pray for them, love them, care for them. If you go to the next one, if you would there. If you could. Um, sorry, back one. Sorry, where are we at here? Verse 44 is what I'm looking for, okay? Um, there we go. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so as you process that and think about that, um, what's the reason behind that? Why does he encourage us to say, you know what, when you've got that anger, when you feel that, the first thing you should do is not just bottle it up and figure out what can I do out of my anger, is to hit your knees and to say, God, I'm wrestling with this, follow David's example, God, I feel anger, I feel hatred, this is what's going on inside of me, search me, try me, test me, show me a better way. Why does he do that? I love the way, the reason that Jesus gives it, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's the same reason he gave him back in Leviticus 19, because you're my kids. And so you're going to do it differently than everybody who doesn't know me. Those who don't know me, they're going to live their life in anger and revenge and, and bitterness. But my kids, they're going to live like I live. They're going to have a heart like I have for people. And so God desires reconciliation. God desires peace. God desires um, love and grace in the face of hostility and, and, and ugliness. He wants a different way. Now, what this verse also says to us is that Jesus knows this is hard. Um, he knows this is not natural. He knows this is not your first response when, when you're hurt, right? He knows that. And so that's why he, he says, hey, um, before you go and do, stop and talk to me. All right, let's talk here. Let me infuse my power, my spirit, my word into your life so that as you try to do this different way, which is going to feel very contrary to what normally you're going to feel, let me help you with that. And the cool thing that happens is that as you begin to pray, God, this person said this to me yesterday. This person did this to me yesterday. What's that going to do? It's going to begin to open your life up, and you're going to begin to rehash those pains, aren't you? You're going to think, you know what, I remember when they said those words, and I remember how I felt, God. And what does that do? It allows a couple of things to happen. One, it's good to get that out, to say, this is how I feel. This is what I'm struggling with. But it's also good because it opens up the opportunity for God to speak truth into your life. Maybe they said something that diminished your, your, your personhood. Well, what's God's truth going to say? Well, God's going to say, you're my child, and so that's not true. You shouldn't believe that. Or God's going to say, well, that's not right. Or, or maybe he's going to say, well, you're doing something wrong, and he's going to begin to lead and direct you. And that, just that whole process of prayer just opens our life to be able to, kind of like David, just grow through the pains of life. And as we do so, God begins to change our heart. And the same grace that he used to initially save us is that grace that we begin to live in and we live through and we live upon. And God begins to do something through our life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a man who knew much about persecution. He knew much about what it was like because he was a pastor in Germany during World War II and would eventually be executed by um, the Nazis. This would say this. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Again, next time someone offends you, 
you know, what a powerful thing it would be instead of plotting revenge and, and feeling sorry for yourself, if you were to hit your knees and begin to pray, standing by their side, praying, pleading to God for him or her. He goes on to say, moreover, moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means also to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. It is impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not wait to pray for an enemy before we feel love for him in our hearts. We must pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. We shall find that our love breaks first into bud and then into blossom. So what's Jesus calling us to? A different, a different way. And so he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You will be like your Father when you begin to think this way, because how does your Father in heaven work? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His kindness and his generosity, his goodness is not just felt by those who love him and who have responded to him. His kindness and his goodness has been shown to you long before you ever asked for it or even knew about it because that's the nature of his heart is to seek to do good, to seek to bless, to seek to help. And so we will be like him in that way. And that leads us to verse 46. He says, this is the part where this is going to be different. This is not just a natural you. You're not going to do this on your own. You're only going to do this in cooperation with God and his spirit. Because if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even tax collectors are not, aren't they do that. And the Pharisees hated the tax collectors. They were hated at so many levels. And so when Jesus said these words, he would have ruffled many feathers. The tax collectors can be as good as you guys when you just love people who love who are like you. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Pagans do that. People who have no idea who God is easily do that. That's that transactional thing. When you came into church today, somebody probably asked you, how are you doing? I'm fine. And what did you ask them back? How are you? I'm fine. We did a transaction, right? We, we both asked, how are we? And we're all fine. Uh, and so that's an easy thing. But Jesus says that's normal. Everybody can do that in the world. But to be, hey, if I was to greet you and say, hey, you're really ugly today. And you responded, well, thank you. God bless you. That's different, right? If Instead of you hunting, hurting them or wanting to hurt them back, it's like, well, that was insulting. Let me pray for you, jerk. Okay, so let me, that's different, right? That's, that's not a natural response that we tend to do. And so there needs to be, what, is, what are we doing as we pursue this different way? It's God growing in us, God changing us. And it really helps, it leads us in verse 48 to his level of be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That word perfect is a word that means whole, it means complete. It, it, it may, it's just, instead of just being the superficial, hey, you're doing right things like the Pharisees tended to do, the outer cup, while the inside of the cup is really dirty, this is changing you from the inside out. You are whole. Your inside loves God and trying to follow God at a heart level, not just at an obedience level. So there's many more things we could say about this, but uh, um, I'll finish with this. Um, in a couple weeks, there's a movie coming out that I'm excited about. Um, Several years ago, there was a book uh, about that told the story of the life of Louis Zamperini called Unbroken. Anybody read Unbroken? You should read it if you haven't. Um, it's a great story. It tells the story of a man who was a B-52 bomber, uh, gunner, and he was shot down in the Pacific, drifted for 90 days, whatever it was, and rescued, kind of rescued by Japanese soldiers, spent years in a Japanese prison camp where he was tortured and beaten. His life was a living hell day by day. There was a particular soldier 
in, uh, in the Japanese army named the Bird who made Louis Zamperini his targets and was trying to break him in every way he could, and they just had this ongoing battle about who would break. And so he survives that. So if you saw the movie that came out a few years ago, the movie, probably everybody sees the movie, but the unbroken movie that came out a few years ago, it told the story up to the point where he was rescued from his prison camp and how he survived all the torture and the beatings that he took, and, and it stopped there. And it's an inspiring story because he endured a lot. But if you've ever read the book, the best part of the book, it's good that he survived all that stuff. That's a great story. But the best part of the book takes place when he gets home. Because Louis Zamperini comes home and he is a mess. He is so messed up on the inside from all the torture, from all the stuff. He has trouble sleeping because it's just nightmare after nightmare of the torture that was done to him. He turns to alcohol. He becomes an alcoholic. And, and his life is violent. His family lives in fear of him. He woke up one day thinking he was strangling the bird, but he was really strangling his wife. And so it's just his life was a mess. Until one day his wife encouraged him to go to this Billy Graham crusade. And, and he heard this message that told the story of how God loved him. And he didn't believe that because his life had been so full of pain. Um, he was ashamed of where he was and didn't know how to help himself and fix things. And, and he began to recount a prayer he had prayed when he was adrift, I believe, that said, God, if you rescue me, this, me from this, I will serve you with my life. And he began to recount that prayer and, and began to look at all the ways that God had been good to him, even through his torture, even through his pain. He, he had given him strength. He had helped him to survive and just listed all the things. And finally, he surrenders himself to Christ, and, and his life begins to change. And so at one point, he had plotted to go back to Japan to seek revenge against the bird when the war was over. And he wanted revenge, but then when he met Christ, he goes back to Japan not to seek revenge, but to offer forgiveness and to seek reconciliation with a man who had tortured him for years and years. And so I'm excited on September 14th because there's a, a, another movie. They made the sequel, I guess, this part two, which is my best part of the story. And Unbroken, A Path to Redemption comes out. And I don't know if it'll be good or bad or not, but it tells that part of the story. And, and I think that's the part that they should have told first because lots of people have survived prison camps. And again, that's a great story, inspiring in and of itself. But there's not many who go back to their captors and say, let me build a bridge of peace. And why would he do that? It's because he listened to what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5. He took his prayers, to his prayers, his hurts, his pains, his abuses, all the bad that had happened to him. And he left that there. And God, day by day, not instantly, but God, day by day, began to renew and fix and heal the things that were broken inside of him to the point where he would be willing to go back to the same place he had been tortured and beaten um, to say, I have a message for you. There's this God who gives me grace, and I'd like to talk to you about his grace for you too, because I care for you. And so that's a, that's a supernatural thing. That doesn't happen naturally. That's a God thing. And, and so maybe you and I don't have a dramatic story like that, but I'll bet there are people that you go to school with. I'll bet there are people that you live with, we live with, I live with in our homes. I bet there are people that you work with, live in the community with, um, who are those hard to get along with people. And instead of complaining and finding reasons to curse them or ignore them, just walk away from them, maybe we need to learn to pray for them, that God would bless them and that he would help us to learn to even love them. 
I know that may sound crazy for some of you because of the hurt and the people in your life, um, but Jesus is promising something really cool here. And so it's my prayer this week that you would learn to pray what Jesus is calling you to. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute 